Hello and welcome to Techno Social. This is the second part of our conversation with Alexander Bard, the Swedish philosopher and futurist. In this episode, we continue our discussion of the netocratic world, exploring how it differs from the previous systems of feudalism and capitalism. And we continue to examine who becomes powerful in this world as well. We talk about the new forms of social capital, attention and data, and talk about new fields of study that are opened up by our access to data, like deep anthropology, deep sociology, deep history. We also start to think about the transformations that may occur in the 21st century, considering how many of our contemporary institutions, like politics and academia, aren't really fit for purpose and seem to be focusing more and more on building awareness than delivering real, authentic, meaningful content to people. We start to think about who and what might replace these things. Finally, we touch on Alexander's background in the music industry, exploring how Spotify algorithms shape listening patterns, what the hit song is, and talking a little bit about the masculine spirit of heavy metal too, something that's pretty close to my heart. Hope you guys enjoy. young people who are aspirational and do want to move from the underclass towards the, the netocrats, what are the steps? What do you do? Okay. The best thing you can do, and that's exactly what the most successful tech startups have done, is to create a platform on which other people can dance. Stop thinking about you. This is not about you. This is not about your ego or your name or your brand, your personal brand. Bullshit. It's not about that at all. It's about you being part of a larger network of people, say your own tribe or subculture. And if you're the ambassador of that subculture, meaning that in any environment you go into or you represent the community that you're part of, that's when you become powerful. So you represent your community. You're the ambassador of the subculture that you belong to. That's when you get influenced. That's when people start following you. That's when your voice is interesting to, for other people to hear. <clears throat> because you are actually reporting from inside your subculture to other subcultures. You, you basically, it's like you connect the tribes. You create mm -hmm. larger systems of, of, of humans that can actually interact with each other and therefore create a higher value together. Now, if you, if you become the person that do, does that, then certainly you will get tons and tons of followers. Then if you also collect the data on which other people can do amazing, innovative, imaginative things, that's essentially what Silicon Valley has done so far, Google and the other guys have done. That is, that is the first primary netocracy. Data replaces capital the way capital once replaced land ownership as the fundamental real aspect of power. On top of that, you build imaginary power, and that is the ambassador. That is the guy who represents his subculture. That used to be the chieftain or the king of the tribe, etc. right? Then the third one is always the symbolic one. That's the narrative. And that means the people who can produce a story that you can use to orientate yourself in this landscape are also going to be netocrats. 
They used to be the priests and church once upon a time, then it became the professors and academia. Now, this means the internet is going to kill all the old institutions, exactly like the printing press killed feudal society. The printing press killed the church, more or less. Well, there are only a few Polish church ladies left by now. Nobody else cares about them living the way we used to know it. Um, it killed the monarchies of Europe. They became powerless or redundant and thrown out. And, and it certainly killed land ownership as the primary um, occupation of, of power, right? So we replaced it with money. That became the bourgeoisie. They lived in cities, they were academics, and they became politicians. That's the structure we know. That structure is now falling apart. It's trying to defend itself fiercely. It is attacking what the internet is producing because it thought first for the first 30 years that the internet would be there to serve it. That's what we wrote books about already in the late 1990s. said, no, 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 guys, the internet's gonna kill you. The internet's not gonna save you. The internet's gonna make, not gonna make you more money. The internet's gonna, not gonna make you smarter. The internet's not gonna make politics any easier. It's the other way around. The internet's gonna kill all those things. So we need a new, a real and a new symbolic and a new imaginary power structure. And that's gonna come out of the internet itself. It's gonna come out of the interactions between us. It's gonna come out of the algorithms. It's gonna come out of deep tech. What we're gonna do with the data once we have access to the data. And what we're creating then is a kind of a sensocratic planet, a planet full of sensors everywhere that register absolutely everything that happens. And whether that's good or bad is, of course, a, you know, that's a split question. That's a split mm. question. Uh, but that's what we have to create to save us from climate change and things like that anyway. Um, if it's personified, it could be awesome. If it is personified, it could be complete not tyranny. But that's where we're headed. So the autocracy would have these three different functions. Mm. I think something that I found interesting in your work as well is the idea that there are different mythologies or mythological grammars that relate to these different historical eras. So the medieval time when you had the priests and the monarchy and the aristocrats, and we had the sort of eternalist God, and then the more recent paradigm with the, the capitalists and the politicians and the academia, that individualist progressive fantasy. And now yeah. we have the new mythology, which I guess that's what you guys are doing with syntheism. Is it? Yeah, we are. Yeah, you, yeah. yeah exactly. The, the syntheism is, an, is, 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 a, is a game. So it's like, uh, what if we play around with the fact that religion is not hard to create at all? And what if conducting and, and doing research on metaphysics, like what is the overarching uh, story that needs to be told. And we're doing it two ways. We're both looking into the future and that we're doing by studying what technology does. So what kind of flows and stops in our society are increased or become more important as technology progresses. So we're looking at information technology primarily and then we're discovering what happened, what's happening with the computers and the smartphones and laptops and everything and how we're interacting with them and how that changes what it means to be human. So, but we also go deeper into history. And ironically, the reason we can do that is precisely we're also collecting data. So when we're collecting data about ourselves, and if we assume that we haven't really changed that much over the last 5,000 years of civilization, we are essentially biologically exactly the same creatures. 5,000 years is way too short of a time for evolution to have an impact. So that means if we're the same, we can now study by using ourselves as material, when you, when you can take data from millions of people, you can study and see tribal patterns. 
You don't have to guess what the tribe is liking. You know, when, you, when you're gonna do science, the problem is you've got an hypothesis and if you can't prove it, it's only guesswork and then you cannot build from it because you can't guess on a guess, on a guess, on a guess, okay? You need some kind of solid foundation. So a guess is only something you do to then prove whether it's correct or not. So you can turn it into a fact and then build further on that. Now we can look at a lot of different hypotheses we've had about human beings from the world of anthropology and how we human beings operate in a universal sense, meaning anybody on the planet will operate in a similar way. And we can just study some millions of people in only minutes and verify whether that's correct or not. So Roger Dunbar, for example, the British sociologist, came up with the idea in the 1990s that there probably was a certain size of the original nomadic tribe because the nomads were moving across, across climate zones and they were also moving between highlands and coasts in the tropics, so they moved from different climates anyway. So there wouldn't be any point in the nomadic tribe having different sizes. Until Dunbar came along with that idea, we all assumed that there were large tribes, there were small tribes, et cetera, et cetera. And Dunbar basically said, no, there's really no logic behind that. The tribes should be a certain size to be optimal. And also, of course, evolutionary speaking, it, Richard Dawkins is wrong, it wasn't the selfish gene. He should have written a book called The Selfless Tribe because tribes either survived or died. And if tribes survived and other tribes died out, a tribe would then expand and it would certainly after a certain time split and become two tribes. So they'd be an optimal size they were geared towards. So we could just study, for example, people's online behavior, how they act with social media, make a difference between a friend and an acquaintance. Facebook doesn't do that, but if we allow that to happen, so a friend would be something you emotionally relate to and remember the face and the name of. You emotionally relate to that person. That person means something to you. It's just not a name in an address book that you might contact one day. It's some, something that means something to you. Dunbar did not expect in the 1990s that we would ever be able to figure out the Dunbar number. But now we have. It's exactly 157. So it's 157 grown-up people who are the core of the tribe and some children possibly some older people who we keep for their wisdom, and that's the tribe. So somewhere between 150 and 250 people, that's the tribe. The exact Dunbar number itself is 157. That means now we can do anthropology. We probably got something here. This is valuable now to anthropology to build further and understand deep history better as the Planck length was for physics. When physics discovered, there is a minimum length, incredibly small, but a minimum length, within which discretion cannot happen. So it's required for discretion to happen, meaning we can build building blocks of physics from that length. We even have a Planck time now, which is the time for light to travel along the Planck length, okay? These are foundations. These are like bricks on which you can then build new theories of physics. Mm. The same thing goes for anthropology. We're gonna discover, we will know a lot more about ourselves, both from a scientific perspective so social sciences are going to be revolutionized. There's a reason why Jordan Peterson, John Favarki, these guys are coming out of cognitive science because cognitive science is right now going through that very revolution through data. Anthropology, same thing. So we will, we will be able to prove that human beings operate in certain patterns, which mm. will be very, very helpful. And if you add that onto the fact that Google and these companies have all the data they need about guys like you, they can figure out exactly which restaurant you're going to go to tonight, exactly what type of friends you want to see, exactly what kind of drugs you want to take in the nightclub or whatever. So they will figure out before you even thought about it what you want. That's a revolution we're going to see 
already the next 10 years on a large scale. Mm. Are you following the stuff that um, guys like Jordan Hall, Daniel Schmachtenberger, and the Rebel Wisdom guys seem to be talking about a lot, which is this. Yeah, they're my friends, all of them. So, so, yeah, uh, oh, fantastic. Friends that I can be antagonistic with, but also agree with strongly. I'd say I agree with just about everything that Jordan Hall and Daniel Schmachtenberger are up to. I think it's highly admirable. I think it's great work they're doing. Forrest Landry and Zach Stein, too. All those guys who belong to that New York Hacker Collective in Southern California. Great guys, great guys. Mm. Definitely check them out. Highly recommend it. I think what Rebel Wisdom are doing is also amazing. I think David Fuller is an amazing documentary filmmaker. He's also discovered many of these guys, especially gone to North America. He stayed, David Fuller has stayed almost exclusively within a very Anglo-Saxon environment. So he basically talks to people in British English. He talks to people from Britain and from North America. The only thing then is that that's a bit of a limited perspective today because I like to speak to people from India and China and Japan and everywhere. I think we need a much more global perspective that can actually get that quickly. But when it comes to somebody who now is documenting the area between politics and spirituality and does it really, really well from an Anglo-Saxon perspective, the rebel wisdom guys are doing it formidably. It's great work they're doing. Mm. So I, I think all of us who are concerned at the moment and who believe that the current discourse is dysfunctional and infantile, we have to understand us as a human in a much deeper sense and take us as much more seriously than just run into some stupid eco-moralism or, you know, whatever else is happening out there. And I think they're also becoming aware. I think where my work fits into this is that John Söderqvist and I have been arguing for the past 25 years that the old institutions of the nation state are going to die. That crisis is now happening before our eyes. So, Jordan Hall's more popularized version of that would be like the blue church and the red church. Okay. Mm. We're just saying, okay, red church is in between. It's an antithesis to the thesis called the blue church, but actually it's a synthesis that's really interesting. So what's going to come out of that is that we're going to have the old right and the old left fight each other, probably violently so in America. Expect, you know, civil war-like tribal warfare, terror sects and things, and a lot of havoc like that. So that's what we're describing digital libido. That's what's called sex power and violence in network society. But beyond that, of course, there's hope. Beyond that, there could be the synthesis. And it's not a compromise between the two. No, synthesis is the new response to the crisis. It's, 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 it's how you get out of the current predicament you're stuck with. So between eco-moralism and climate change deniers, you need to get rid of the both. You need to get rid of the climate change deniers more than anything because they're actually just factually wrong. But you also need to take the moralist of environmentalism accountable for bullshitting and talking about organic farming and all kinds of things that have nothing to do with climate change whatsoever. It actually makes things worse. Okay? So no, it's not less plastic bags that the world needs right now. It needs less, less carbon dioxide and, and greenhouse gases in the air more than anything else, right? So. Ecotopianism is the response to that. It's only gotten started, but it is a sort of an angry response to that both sides are wrong in the debate. So I think we have to be very careful. This is not about diplomatic art of conversation. This is about understanding that all the two arguments presented to you in antagonism, one is probably better than the other, but it's not good enough. Then come with the third argument. Let's have a synthetic approach. And then keep, for your own good, keep the better of the two arguments and save it. 
So you have somebody to argue against who would then challenge you with your ideas. Mm. That is to be truly Hegelian, that, that to take a Hegelian approach to the current crisis. And I'm not sure you'd see that if you come from America or England because you're not immersed in that kind of thinking. I think this will continent Europe could definitely contribute. I think coming out of Scandinavia where I live or France or Germany, you're going to find a whole new generation of thinkers that are actually approaching it that way. Stavos Zizek is a perfect example of that. And he did make mincemeat out of Jordan Peterson when they met last break. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. He did. He did. It was kind of embarrassing that Jordan wasn't better prepared because Jordan is also brilliant, but he wasn't well prepared for that meeting. So um, the, the, this approach to problem solving and to where the solution is coming means it's valuable. I like the UDV Vipassana meditation, you understand the monastery milieu, because right now we don't need the revolution. We can't do the revolution, it's impossible. We have to retract. This is the age of retraction. Pull yourself away, get the distance, go into deep studies, do deep history, deep psychology, you know, deep technology, understand technology, and psychology and history from the deepest possible perspective. Use the new media, use the data to understand things deeper. Do the research better and deeper. Make it even more scientific, more factual, more correct. Get the nonsense out of there. Get the opinions out of there. And then we have the material we need to be revolutionaries. Right now is not the time to do revolutions because if you try to do revolution today, you end up with Occupy Wall Street. And it was pathetic. Imagine you're a finance guy and you're working in Wall Street. You see all these kids in the streets full of themselves with Instagram accounts running around there. What would you say? You'd look out the window and say, yeah, they're going to be around for three days because that's about how long they last. Like, they, they, they have no staying power. You always beat the shit out of the guys who don't have staying power. They always lose anywhere. So they have no staying power. All they need is an Instagram picture of themselves and a T-shirt and off they go. I wouldn't be surprised if Wall Street guys even printed the Occupy t-shirt and sold it to the fucking guys in the street. Right? Damn. That's not how you beat capitalism. No. What Karl Marx said was you create something better. That takes generations and decades of hard work. That's why I like Marx. Mm. So here's something that's interesting is that I feel like a lot of the North American thinkers, especially, very afraid of Marx, whereas Europeans yeah. seem much more com comfortable exploring Marx. I mean, I studied Zizek at university, so I'm quite familiar with, with at least his approach to Marx. I haven't really read Marx that much, but it's interesting to see just that split. Yeah, uh, they don't get it. Uh, I love Camille Pogda and I love Jordan Peterson, but they're embarrassing when they attack Marxism. No, they're attacking a flaw, pseudo version of Marxism practiced at the American universities for the past 30 years by people who've never even studied Marx. Okay, that's not Marx. No, there's a reason why Marx came after Rousseau. And that's the reason why Marx built on Kant and Hegel. He hated Rousseau. Rousseau played into the resentment of people and said, you should be given everything you want we should create some kind of society of abundance and basically put all the humanity, all of humanity at the tit so they can suck the tit the rest of their lives. We try to do that with the welfare state. We try to do that with consumer society. And Rousseau is really what Jordan Peterson, Camille Pagan, these guys, that, that, that's the guy they're attacking. But they can't attack Marx the same way. 
because Marx dis does not build this philosophy on resentment. He builds it on the heroic. And when you look at the heroic going forward, when the heroic now has to be tribal. So you have to create your subculture. I create my subculture. You're an ambassador of your subculture. I'm an ambassador of mine. We have a conversation and create a podcast. It will be followed if we do go into the position of representing our subcultures because that dialogue is deeply fascinating to people, okay? For that to happen, you and I have to become Marxist because the problem with Nietzsche is that Nietzsche is still within the realm of the Cartesian individual. That's exactly why he went mad at the end because he was so focused on him being some aristocrat who would stand above all the predicaments of humanity and be the only guy who would be free from a sentiment and be heroic. That's exactly what Marx and Nietzsche happened in parallel. They didn't read each other because what Marx is trying to do is try to create the heroic as a tribal creature. That means a new class that beats the shit out of previous classes. That's why our first book, The Nitocrats, is a Marxist book. It merges Marx and Nietzsche and says that, what if Nietzsche had thought of a proletariat the way Marx did? That's exactly what the contemporary netocracy is. The Nitocrats today are Nietzscheans who behave as if they were Marxists. So you must say Marx in that sense. You must say Marx and Marxist thinking. And out of the Marxist comes a rich, 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 rich variety of thinking that's incredibly useful. I'm using the Frankfurt School a lot in my work. The Frankfurt School were German Jewish philosophers in the 1920s and 1930s, of course, left Germany when Hitler came. But before that, they were all based in Germany. And they merged Freud's deep insights about our our subconscious controls us, not our conscious, our subconscious controls us with Marx and started dreaming, what if we think of a proletariat that is aware of the fact that it's operated by its own subconsciousness? What would a proletarian subconsciousness look like? It's a very artistic fantasy. That's what the Frankfurt School, out of that came Adorno, out of Adorno came modern music. You know, you, you wouldn't do classical music today unless you studied Adorno first. These guys were incredibly influential on literature and art, everything. I mean, art as we know it owes everything it does to the Frankfurt School. So it, they're incredibly important. And this is a mixture of Marx and Freud. Uh, Marx has been incredibly influential in a very, very positive way in our thinking. The problem was that when Lenin came across Marx, he came to Russia, only saw a bunch of uneducated peasants running around in the streets and fantasized that they could be proletarian. Marx would have strongly disapproved of the Russian Revolution as being communist. So the word communist was stolen from Marx and applied on a system called the Soviet Union, which ultimately failed. And an even worse version of it was made by Mao in China. They were all little boys fantasizing about being grown-up men or being gods for that matter, who failed precisely for that reason. There were fake fallacies on them. And the worst one of all of them, if you look at the murder rate, considering how long he was in power, was, of course, Paul Pot in Cambodia. Mm. And it's very important to note that when Paul Pot left Sorbonne in Paris in 1967 as a very clever Asian guest student, his PhD was on Rousseau. It wasn't on Marx. And then he went home and killed two million of his own countrymen, starting with the guys who wore glasses. Anybody who had a mind, he would kill them, right? So given in Digital Libido how disparagingly you write of the consumptarians of today or indeed of tomorrow. Do you think the possibility exists to become the heroic proletariat within them? And if so, how? 
or we kind of stuck well, in that's you can't because if you become a successful consumptarian, you will be instantly adopted by the netocracy and become part of it. Because we're now living in a society where, where you move between classes at a rate we've never seen before. So the movement between classes, essentially dictated by algorithms, happens so rapidly. And the netocracy, it's, it's not like the netocracy hates the consumptarian. It might be a burden on them. It might be a burden to look out through your window and realize that seven out of the eight billion people on the planet are fucking loose at the moment, right? But it doesn't mean you need to kill them. You probably need to seduce them. You, or if you can't seduce them, you need to, to sedate them. You, you, you need to keep them away from you. You need to, you, you know, you need to have uh, CCCs everywhere. You need to, you know, it, it's going to be nasty. They're going to try to control the masses. That's for sure. But at the same time, I can guarantee that the netocrats will have their eyes on the consumptarian and any, any sort of talent they find in there, they will immediately adopt it, employ it, and make it a part of its own system. So we read a lot about already in the netocrats 25 years ago that there are limits to how many metaphors and analogies we can use here because the fact that we're moving so rapidly between the classes now, the classes are there and they're very real and they're cruel. The class system is cruel, right? But it's there. But it doesn't mean it's not possible for you to move between the classes, fall straight through to the consumptarian, or gain a position in the autocracy. But because we are also keeping check of all the talents out there, we will find them instantly. You know, I used to work in the music industry. I'll give you a perfect example. Nobody in the music industry is listening to new music any longer. They're just sitting waiting for the algorithms to say, boom, somebody on SoundCloud put the music out there for free, 700,000 streams. Mm. You just call the guy without even listening to music. I saw you had 100,000 streams. You know what we specialize in at the record company? We want to co-own you and invest in you, and then we're going to take you from 100,000 to 1 billion. That's what we're good at. So to find talent now, it's going to be so damn easy. There's any talent out there, people point in that direction. That's exactly, you mentioned Jordan Peterson, John Favarke, Jordan Hall, Dennis Schmachtenberg, Neurohacker guys, you mentioned Rebel Wisdom in the UK. We're working here in Scandinavia, we have our teams over here, right? How do these communities, there are different subcultures with, with similar ideas and similar passions, how do they connect so quickly these days? The online world, of course. The Skypes and the Zoom conversations. So if you find people out there that have similar ideas to yours, you will connect them and way, way faster now than you did before. That also means the movement between the classes is going to happen much more rapidly. Mm. So it's not like you don't have a chance if you're born into the consumptariat, but you're going to have a really, really tough challenge in front of you to be successful. Mm. There are if fewer winners than ever, and the winners win more than they ever did. Mm. That just sounds like capitalism gone. Yes. It's called tensionalism for a reason. Mm. So what do you think the late 21st century looks like if we don't fuck it all up, if things go to plan? I think we will fuck up quite a lot and that will be costly. Mm. But what I compare it with, which is quite reasonable, is to say that, so you got a lot of costs involved with climate change and things like that. Um, and we haven't moved into the recycling economy yet. We haven't moved into the sharing economy yet. All those things would save us tons of resources. But um, I think technological change will go in both directions. It will both ca cause a lot of havoc, but it will also cause the most amazing things. Um, so I would say we need to compare the costs involved with climate change with the costs of, say, a third world war. 
I'm still way more scared of the atomic bombs than I'm scared of climate change when mm. it comes to the existential issue. Will we human beings still be around on this planet 100 years from now? Yes, very likely. Will it be messy? Yes, also very likely. Will changes that occur to us because of our behavior be costly to us? Definitely. So we are now thinking of the world network dynamically. But what I want to get out of that picture is the hubris of little boys playing gods, thinking they're going to go to other planets and bullshit like that. Have you got any idea how hard it is to travel in space and to settle on some other planet? It's just, it's just hilariously stupid. Okay, we need to stay on this planet. We need to be focused on fixing this planet as, as well as we can, keep the cost down and you know, create better systems of collaboration between countries so we can move people quicker and in a more sound and, and, and functioning way we do it. We can't have these mass migrations that are uncontrolled. There will be a really aggressive reaction against that, but we can have migration that is controlled and intelligent. And that kind of intelligent migration is going to be key. Both at the top of society, the, you know, the netocrats are global nomads. We call them global nomads for 25 years. It's the correct description. Increasingly living in places like Dubai and Singapore, and if they don't get what they want, like in Hong Kong right now, they fight for it and then they move out and move to some other city state where they can live the lifestyle. But besides those guys out there, we're also going to see a lot of nomadism at the bottom of society. The concentrate have to be nomadic because they have to migrate from some parts of the world to other parts of the world. That migration has to happen, but it has to be intelligent and not uncontrolled and stupid. Otherwise, it's going to be even more havoc. Mm. What about the political institution? So I'm proposing it's dead. It is dead. Uh, we wrote in the Netocrats in chapter six in the year 2000 that in the very near future, America is very likely to elect a reality TV show host as president. <laughs> and it happened 60 years later. It's called Donald Trump. Now, I think that's, yeah, I don't think voters are stupid. I think they reacted against the establishment. I agree totally with Jordan Hall's perfect analysis of it of the blue church and the red church. Obviously, that's what happened. I even, I even gambled on Donald Trump winning and made a lot of money out of it because I saw it happen. But yeah. we've got to see politics be more and more theater, more and more fantasy, more and more devoid of reality and less and less having to do with how society actually operates. The administrative aspect of the society as it operates will more and more be handled by algorithms and by technology. And at the end of the day, technology will take over. And you know, it's a way, we're moving into sensocracy anyway. For good reasons, you almost feel more powerful today when you go down to the local shop and, and, and shop the ingredients you're gonna have when you're gonna cook your dinner. You, you feel more powerful doing that, picking the products that you wanna use to cook your dinner than you do when you go to an election booth every four years. If, yeah. that, election, if that election booth is just a joke anyway, it's just about Boris Johnson's hairdo, you know? Why care? Well, you can go there and care the way you care about a reality TV show. It's a freak show, for God's sake. Politics today is nothing but a freak show. And it's, if it isn't entertaining, like Donald Trump says for four days he's going to buy Greenland. Well, we all know that's not going to happen. But everybody got into it because it was so funny and weird and strange. You know, he did nothing and he gains popularity because of it. Mm. But it doesn't work with the credibility. It works with the awareness factor all the time. Attention is awareness multiplied credibility. And if a system moves from having credibility as the strongest aspect, like academia and politics and business used to do, 
and they're all moving into the realm of awareness. Like we have to constantly create awareness around ourselves to be out there. The marketing guys get more and more desperate in business. You know, television gets more and more desperate, politics more and more desperate, academia more and more desperate. Well, they, that, that's a sign they're dying. They're losing their momentum. Because the online world, because of the algorithms, is only going to be about one single thing, quality. Quality. And since politics and academia are not dealing with quality any longer, and business certainly isn't either, that is where you find what you're looking for next and what will replace the current system as we know it. The point about academia is interesting because like I observed from myself, having gone through studying and doing a master's degree and then being at a point where I was like, well, I love learning. I love studying. I could go on, look at a PhD, but it's so much fucking money. And then at the end of it, I don't know what I'll have other than a piece of paper that then says I can attempt to go and find work in one of the institutions, but get shunted around every year. Well, I, I work with human resource managers at companies and they don't certainly look at your academic credentials any longer. They stopped doing that a long time ago. They want to get to know you. They look at your Facebook account, your LinkedIn account, check in what kind of social network you have. And then they check in, have their own test available for you to see that you know what you're going to be up to when you do your job. Why would they care about university? I mean, that's the next crisis sector as far as I'm concerned. Who, who the fuck goes and listens to a mediocre professor when you can go online and check out all the best material in the world on YouTube for free? Mm. And if you want to pay a little sum for it, then you can join an online course and then you go to a damn test center. And the only thing you need to do in a physical space is to do the test because you would obviously fake it if you did it at home on your own, right? So with that in place, that's the next big sector for tech startups to take over. Academia, as far as I'm concerned, is dead. It's just too expensive. It, it just, and the argument, you need to go to university to socialize. You socialize all the time in contemporary society. And if you're a student today, you socialize more in nightclubs than you ever do on a campus. You know, that idea is ridiculous. Now, academia is the lamest duck of them all right now. I, I don't see any future for it at all. And, and the only thing we want in the future anyway is to re-educate ourselves throughout our lives. So when, when, when a new complexity stands before us, the way we handle that is that I want to learn about this, I want to understand this. And then you move on, knowing that two, three years later, you need to re-educate yourself all over again because then things have changed. So that kind of lifelong learning that you could have with you the rest of your life that the universe was supposed to provide you with is becoming more and more redundant. I've heard you talk about the, um, the secular monastery as well as something that may pop up to, to replace it. The idea is that we'll have these perhaps new learning institutions, but that are as much about cultivating something within ourselves in that monastic sense as it is just about learning. And I'm very interested by this. I, brilliant. Maybe that's your career, even Owen. Uh, the, the, the guy who can unify the spa with therapy and clinic and education and put them in one place and preferably as far away from London or Stockholm as possible. So it takes you an effort to get there because then you believe in it, right? The first thing you probably do when you walk inside is to turn it from mobile and put it aside for a few days, right? So those kind of centers, the one-stop shops, that gives you the spa treatment, that gives you the therapy session with you, with you maybe also with your partner or something like that. Um, that gives you martial arts, that gives you the yoga, gives mm. you the meditation sessions. 
uh, gives you the diet diets the dieting right what kind of food are you going to eat how, how do you how, how can you be nice to yourself right and then education on top of that why don't you put all those things into one place and create packages different packages of those services because the market for that is going to be huge mm. i mean to begin with that's where the netocrats will want to live or at least you know be an airbnb for a while before they move on to the next center like that but you know that kind that kind of one-stop shop i think is going to explode over the next 10 years and people figure out that's a good thing and that's going to be the countryside it's preferably somewhere you go you don't want it to be urban you don't want it to be close to your apartment in your workplace because then doesn't create the, the you know the, the needed space in your head that you need to contemplate so yeah. need to go outside somewhere a few hours drive or you know go somewhere be nature and that's where the center is with all the professional capacities needed to supply those different things fix me you know <laughs> and teach me mm, but educate me and educate in that sense the original latin sense of actually lead out what is the potential within rather than just You're becoming quite a philosophy yes exactly in the original sense, that's more profound than the way we misunderstand it today. Yes, I agree. I agree. That's why we have a wave of, you know, the yoga, the meditation, the spirituality scene and all that. It's been too new agey, but everything is a bit, you know, banal or infantile in the beginning. It's now maturing. And while it's maturing, if you throw the crystals and the astrology out of there and put some education in there and some proper diet and spa treatments and a real gym or something, it becomes real. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's what I think is an issue. As you said, you hit the nail on the head with the, the yoga spirituality stuff. It's like there's the feel good stuff. And then we also have the academic institution, which is you learn. But why is it not together that we're learning to be a human who can also debate and articulate, but also be really be and yeah. experience? And if you, if, you go to your, if you go to university, you still defend the library. So whenever I talk to students these days, I usually take them to the local library of the university where they're located. And I walk in the library and say, has anybody of you set your foot in here the last five years? They say, no. They've been embarrassed. I said, we can burn down this building. Why don't you turn it into fucking spa? It's no longer needed. It's meaningless. It's just, mm. it's just a nostalgic uh, remnant ruin that the older professors hang on to. Now, institutions that hang on to lots of garbage like that should have disposed with a long time ago will always fail. The will always fail. Mm. Yeah, these, these institutions, uh, what replaces them? That's what I'm very interested by. So we talked I, call, about I, call the, I call it Wi-Fi castles because... Wi-Fi castle is a neutral term for either place where you move with some friends to live half the time in the countryside because you could take the Wi-Fi with you anywhere now. Mm. That phenomenon in sociology is called exurbanization. So it's like, if you're only gonna go to work one or two days a week rather than five days a week, you can travel further distances. So you can buy a property that's bigger and that you like more further away from the city center. Mm. So the Bend, yeah, Bend, Oregon is a place you should study. It's a city that has grown from, what, 18,000 to 85,000 people in no time at all. It provides basically people with all the qualities of Portland or San Francisco without the problems. 
such a smaller city but has all the qualities you were looking for originally in the big city because you weren't looking for the size of the big city you were looking for specific qualities in it now if you can have those qualities provided somewhere else i mean if you go south of london you go to brighton that's a place where it has some of those qualities universities like oxford and cambridge have them they can survive the universities that die the places themselves can certainly do that so yeah, these are smaller places and eventually why not then have a Wi-Fi castle, which is basically just a building in the countryside in wild nature that has Wi-Fi connected to it. So you, you're connected with the outside world at all times. Now, that could be a place where you could live, but it could, play, it could be a place you can have and be certainly, but it can also be a place where you can put the center where people only go temporarily to fix themselves and be re-educated. That market is going to be huge. I'm working with the Stockholm School of Economics. I'm on the staff there. I think that is their future. I think Stockholm School of Economics' future is definitely creating these sort of education spa centers in the countryside and own them. Mm. So I think the need for that is big. We can call them Wi-Fi castles for now. It's kind of funny, right? Mm. Okay, I'm going to change tack slightly now and ask a question about, uh, about music because I know you've got the background in the music industry. So one of the things we spoke about recently, we were talking to John Vivekey and talking about contemporary music and what he called the, the death of melody, the fact that a lot of contemporary music seems to just, there's a sound that a lot of it kind of fits into, very repetitive, certainly in the pop charts. And... I find like it's bizarre that on the one hand, we've got the mainstream where everything is so similar, but then beneath that, the underground is flowering and flourishing and you can have the most eclectic, unique sense of what's going on. I think like it's never probably been easier for musicians to create new stuff and share it with people. But then also, why is there a sound that just seems to be emerging above it all that that carries forth. Would you agree with that analysis, first of all? Well, it comes with conversation. You either conversate with others to make them feel included, and then you take the lowest possible, lowest possible denominator and use that. I, I am the Simon Cowell of Sweden as well. I'm, I'm on Sweden's Got Talent, so mm. I'm like a judge on a TV show. I do that because then I have to practice sitting in front of millions of people on the TV screen and work with the lowest common denominator because when I do philosophy, I can obviously work with the highest possible denominator, common denominator, whatever. But uh, it's, um, the hit song is that. The hit song was on a radio before and it's still nostalgically used in that sense that you just want to hear something that other people listen to at the same time. Mm. You know, a sports show, say, say the football game or something like that has similar qualities to that. Now, that doesn't mean that you can pick some kind of music that you love yourself. And if you're really immersed in music and you belong to musical subculture, your friend's playlist will also be available to you on Spotify these days. So you have your own music taste, you have your friends are playing music, and the algorithm has also found people out there around the planet, weirdest places, who share exactly your musical taste. And they will now help you discover the next track you're gonna like. So you can call it songs or tracks, right? Songs are more general, generally spread, Tracks were always much more sophisticated in that sense. That could be just a mood. Uh, you know, I call it sonic wallpaper. It's a term from Brian Eno. So you, you can either create sonic wallpaper. In that case, you have a smaller audience, but they're more loyal. But if you go for the hit song, you're much more disposable, but you're going to have your billions of hits on a streaming service today. Because that connects you with other people. The other one is really for your own ears and your own pleasure. And to only connect with those who are closest to you. 
So we're having the hit songs at the top. They are only temporarily hits, played to death, tons of people intensely. Then we have a huge new sort of musical middle class of people who do, for example, electronica, they're more experimental, they create moods, and that becomes the music you have in the background or while you're sitting working on, on your stuff at the design bureau or something like that, or, or at home, or, you know, only your closest friends. And then you have the bottom of it, which is essentially the crap that's left of Spotify, the four million songs out there that nobody ever listens to. Yeah. That's the pattern of the Spotify data at the moment. Mm. They could literally remove four million songs and nobody would see the difference. Nobody would make paying attention to it, but it would look like there's less music available. So they probably keep the money away because they can afford it. Mm. So that's the pattern we see right now. And I think that is a pattern that actually has been the consumption of music all along. It's only becoming more obvious, clearer to us because we got the data. We see that. Now. And I disagree. Melody has not disappeared. Melody has changed. Melody doesn't necessarily have to be sung. Melody can be played. And in that sense, music hasn't changed that much. It's, it's still about getting that hook out there and mm. you know, pulling you in, seducing you. The sing-along factor. What do you think about the aesthetic of things like heavy metal? And I ask because I'm a pretty much a metalhead at heart. That's what I was a teenager and grew up listening to. And I've always been a bit like, this speaks to me in a way that nothing else really seems to. The, the heaviness, but also the symbolism, the mythology, which didn't seem to be anywhere else that I could find it. And so I've always felt like metal provides a kind of symbolic nourishment in a culture that lacks a lot of it. Uh, no, it appeals to your masculinity. So in a society that teaches you there's no difference between you and the girls and you're all the same and you're all blank slates, a Rousseau and nightmare, if anything, uh, then you go off in your spare time and do the most masculine things you could think of. So that's why guys are doing more martial arts than ever and listening to death metal and hip hop. Mm. And the girls who listen to death metal and hip hop are groupies. They essentially want to get laid by guys who listen to death metal and hip hop. <laughs> yeah, yep, they are. Otherwise, they would have listened to it because the girls listen to pop. So, you know, we knew that in the music industry was actually very gender specific. And there's, there's no such thing as, you know, men listen to guys' stuff, women listen to women's stuff. And the more they pretend in the outside world that they're alike, the more their tastes in art and music are going to be different. Mm. What about... Listen, what? I've got to go. I've got to go off to my lunch meeting. <laughs> oh, okay. I can't just keep asking you questions about music. No. Listen, I'm around. We can have more conversations if you like. I love your podcast. I love your questions. I think you're a brilliant guy and I find it interesting to talk to God from your generation having this conversation. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. See, see what you've got out of this and see what you can do with it and um, we'll stay in touch and, and see what else we can do next. Alexander, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Throwing myself into the shower and off I go. Here we go. <laughs> yeah.